You know, there's this utopian idea that is out there that has been around for a long time. I mean, people have, have sought after this ideology of people getting along really well and no more conflict. You know, if, if, you're, a, if you're a sci-fi geek like myself, you may remember the original Star Trek series that was on TV. I mean, I wasn't old enough for when it was new, uh, but when I was a kid, my dad let me stay up with him uh, late at night. It came on, the reruns did, at 10.30 at night. So I got to stay up with him and, and watch the show with him. It was a great time. I loved it. But there was something in that, that series that, uh, that kind of points to this ideology of what we've been wanting, human beings have been longing for, for a long time. See, the creator, Gene Roddenberry, he had a rule in the original series that uh, couldn't be broken. The, the rule was this. All of the main characters at the end of an episode had to get along. Any conflict that there may have been had to have been resolved before the end of the episode. So while the characters would often have, you know, maybe a butting of heads during the episode, by the end of the episode, they had to have resolved that. He held to this idea that maybe somewhere down the road, us human beings will develop to the point to where we've moved past the petty bickering that keeps us apart. This desire for uh, this harmony that so many have longed after. And, you know, you watch the TV shows and movies and, uh, today, and, and you don't catch that same idea there. You know, rather, it's not uncommon to see conflict between main characters throughout the entirety of a series. We just don't see that, that, con that uh, commonality and that union that was portrayed in that. But, you know, nonetheless, we still realize that something is kind of broken with our world, don't we? we realize that things shouldn't be this level of conflict. I mean, like I said, you see it on TV, you see it in movies, you watch the news. Everywhere you look, there seems to be continual conflict between people. Constant breaking down of this unity thing that somewhere deep inside of us we realize that what is shouldn't be. Something's, something's broken. We, we have this longing for this togetherness, this this idea that's been maybe overused of, can't we all just get along? And we all kind of want that somewhere deep inside of us. You know, as we're moving through these series of conversations on this togetherness idea of what Christianity is, this next topic that we're talking about today kind of fits right here with this. It's the idea of harmony. It's the idea of working together. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 12. That's where we're going to be at today. If you're following along in the version event, uh, then the Scriptures will be listed there. But don't just close your Bibles. I'm going to be going back there often throughout today's message. But most specifically, Romans 12 verse 16, Paul wrote this. He says, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. You know, at one point or another, all of us are selfish, aren't we? I mean, even if we don't want to admit it, the reality is there's points in our life, and sometimes more often than not, but there are points in our life where we are selfish. I mean, children are born into the world grabbing and demanding, and, and babies, while they, they, can't, they don't know any better, they, they really can't do anything different, they are selfish. You know, ask a mom who gets woke up in the middle of the night several times to take care of the baby if the baby's selfish. Might not see it that way, but I mean, that's kind of how we are. Children have to be taught not to be selfish. They have to be taught how to be generous, how to share, how to consider other people. 
And in order for children to be taught that, parents, we have to model that for our kids. Modeling it as as husband and wife, modeling it to our kids, so they can also see, as well as us teaching them, how to not be selfish. How How to be able to get along a little better. Maybe not have those conflicts. So we're not born into the world with that natural bent toward harmony that Paul was talking about here. So what is harmony? Well, what does it look like? You know, sometimes we, we approach harmony from our skewed version of harmony. And, and we approach it from the perspective of looking at things, uh, well, from that selfish perspective. You know, we say things, or at least think them anyway, of, well, if everybody would just do what I say, we would have harmony. If they would just think like me, we could have harmony. And and, and we go about things with a skewed version of what harmony is, but harmony really is something different. You know, in music, when we're talking about harmony, harmony is multiple notes played together in a way that's pleasing to the ears. In storytelling, harmony is when multiple aspects of the story start coming together. In relationships, generally, harmony is viewed as when there is little to no conflict or disagreement. So that's kind of an aspect of what harmony, but what else is harmony? Well, when we're studying the Bible, we have to remember something. That, that one verse that I just pulled out there, Romans 12, 16, it's located in the middle of a bigger teaching element. And if I were to ignore the context of where that passage is at, we would lose out on what's actually being said, said there. So for us to understand what harmony is, we have to look at the context. You could say maybe even like the neighborhood or the community where that, that verse is located. That verse is, is situated in a place that if we were to just look at that verse alone, ignoring its context, it would be like me telling you about a movie that you've never seen before, but only telling you about a 30 to 60 second window into that movie, not giving you the rest of the picture. You wouldn't understand the nuances of the character relationships that are going on to be able to understand, well, what does that dialogue mean? You wouldn't understand the overarching story that's happening or has happened to that point to be able to understand the events that took place. In order to understand that 30 to 60 second window of the movie, you really have to understand the rest of the movie too. Well, the same is true in trying to understand what Paul meant by live in harmony with one another. We have to look at the rest of the passages in order to get to the fuller meaning here. So in the preceding chapters to chapter 12, Paul had been teaching about his desire to see his own people, the Jews, come to salvation as well. Paul had been teaching about the, his his longing to see that happen. He was painting a picture that salvation is found through Jesus and through Jesus alone. That the rest of us who are not born Jews, that it is by God's grace, God's mercy, God's love that we have been grafted into, is the word picture he uses, the spiritual tree. That we have salvation not because we were born with anything, not because of a righteousness that we have developed on our own, that we are now good enough to be saved, but that we are saved because of God's grace and mercy. And it's important to understand that that background there in order to understand what Paul is getting at here. So then in chapter 12, Paul starts a new direction in conversation, but this new direction is connected to the previous section. We we realize the connection here because Paul starts Romans 12.1 with the word, therefore. 
You've heard me say this many times. But whenever you see the word therefore, you should always ask what it is there for. Well, I just got done explaining that. The word therefore, Paul was pointing back to that reality that his, or God's desires for us other people who are not born Jews, that we would be saved. And we are saved because of God's grace and mercy and not by anything we do. So picking it up now in verse, uh, chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters or fellow Christians, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Because God is merciful and gracious, Paul is saying here we are to live for God. This living for God is seen as we adjust our way of thinking. Instead of being conformed or shaped or molded by the world, Paul says here, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As you come to know God more, and God is at work in you, God the Holy Spirit, He helps you to develop that new mind, that new way of viewing the world. So then we will be able to know what pleases God and be able to do it. Part of that new way of thinking is to start seeing ourselves differently than we had seen ourselves before. See, life from birth on is generally lived for ourselves. As I was saying, we were born into the world grasping and demanding for ourselves. We live in a world that is that way, but in Christ, we have to then transform our mind, working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit at work inside you as a Christ follower. He is shaping your mind and helping you to become something new, to develop a new way of thinking, a new attitude. That transformation causes us to see or to move from who we were to who God wants us to be, transforms and moves us from seeing ourselves from uh, the perspective of life is about me, but instead life is about God and His plans. Remember, God, or Paul just got done teaching here about how it is that we are saved from what we were to live now for God. Christians today are grafted into that spiritual tree. We have nothing that inherently saves us. We are saved by God. And Paul reminds his, his readers and us as well that we are to think about ourselves with sober judgment. With sober judgment. The word that's translated, from, uh, that's translated as sober judgment, it means to think rightly to uh, be more practical-minded. Paul uses another word there in verse 3 that indicates the attitude Christians are to have. When he said, think of yourselves with sober judgment, the word think is translated, and I'm going to give you a Greek word, only because this word is vitally important as we move through the rest of today's conversation. But think is translated from a Greek word, phroneo. Now phroneo, it, it, it's a word Paul used to point uh, to Christians moving in a uniform direction with a common mindset 
and a unity in both how they think and in their will. The word pointed to an attitude that as Christians we are to have, an attitude of unity. It was this concept that he taught multiple times based on utilizing this word. This word, it is a mark of Christian behavior that sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. This, this new attitude, this new mind that we are to have. This one that is about unity, of moving in the same direction, having the same will. In other words, Christians are recognized, are to be recognized by having this attitude that he's talking about in here. So in this passage specifically, Paul is saying, have an attitude that leans toward practical thinking. Thinking about life from the perspective of what would please God. He goes on then in the next verses to talk about uh, the serving within the church. And he says how it is that God is the one who has arranged all the parts of the body, talking about the church, so that all the needs of the church can be met. He gifts believers with spiritual gifts through the working of the Holy Spirit to enable us to be able to meet those needs. And he says in those next verses how that's how we serve God, by serving other people. This new attitude that we are to have motivates us then to serve in unity alongside other believers. Then in verse 9, Paul explains the motive behind this new attitude that we are to have. First part of Romans 12, 9, he says, Love must be sincere. We talked about this last week. Love is at the core of all we do. We are to love one another. And we talked about again this last week, but we saw that this, that meant love for fellow believers, but also love for those who are not yet Christ followers, for those outside of Christ. We are to love one another, everybody. And that, that love for everyone, it stems and it flows from our love for God, but even that starts with God's love for us. Everything revolving around this idea of love. But here... Paul adds that our love must be genuine, must be sincere. You see, love cannot just be for show or pretense. It can't be something that we fake. Our love for others must be the real deal. You know why that's true? Do you know why our love must be the real deal? Well, there's several reasons, but for three of them, first of all, we can't keep up the act for very long. We can't keep up the act of pretending we love other people for very long. Eventually, it shows through. People, people look at us and they know the reality. They know whether or not we love them. When the rubber meets the road, who we really are and our actual concern for other people, it shows through. Now, that's, that's tied right in there with number two, is that people can see through this facade, we're not really fooling anybody. Have you ever had anybody paste on that fake smile for you? Have you ever had anybody pretend that they cared? Doesn't feel so good, does it? See, we can all see that. We can all realize and see right through those facades of when people are faking their concern and their care for us. So we can't keep up this facade and pretend we love each other. And third, the reason why we can't pretend this is because God already knows the truth. When we consider God's amazing love and mercy for us, it should motivate us to love other people the same way. When we truly understand how much God loves us and what it is that He has done for us, that motivates us to express love and concern for the people around us. 
This is who God has created us to be. And the cool thing is, God doesn't leave us alone to do this. The Holy Spirit is inside of us, helping us with this new attitude, one that is based in sincere love. This new attitude is one that Christians must, working alongside and with the Holy Spirit, develop. Now, many scholars believe that the next several verses are a conglomeration of various teachings on this topic. How each of these elements aren't necessarily tied together, one, two, three, four. They're kind of connected together based on addressing the topic of the issue. And further, scholars debate as to uh, how the rest of the verses should be applied. Many of them approach these next verses this way, that verses 9 through 13 talk about Christian to Christian interactions in this uh, new attitude that we are to have. Whereas verses 14 through 21 teach about Christian to non-Christian interaction with each other. So let's look at these. The whole teaching, though, is talking about this new attitude that Christians, Christ followers, are to have. Starting uh, again, picking up the rest of verse 9, Romans 12, verse 9, where Paul wrote these words. He says, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And I just have to say, there is a ton in just these verses right here. I wish I had time to go into all of it, but I don't. So I'm just going to skim over it to help us to see how it's all connected in here with what we're talking about. Each of these teachings are pointing to how Christians are to be toward other Christians. We catch this pretty clearly based on the words that Paul used here. So let's pick it apart. First of all, he said to, to hate what is evil. Hate means, uh, uh, in the, the Greek word, it means a strong dislike or aversion towards someone or something. Even repulsion towards someone or something. But did you notice who Paul, or what it is that Paul was pointing to here? Who it is or the direction, the, the what of what it is that we are to have this strong repulsion against? Well, it wasn't people. He said, hate what is evil. In other words, what goes against God or sin? Christians are to be repulsed by sin in and around them. What we might see on TV or in a movie, listen to in a song. We're to be repulsed by that stuff that God would not be pleased with. Maybe what we post on social media. Those images that we see on the internet. Will God be pleased with them? See, we are to hate what is evil. That stuff shouldn't even be in our lives. We shouldn't want it there because it's repulsive. The language that sometimes comes out of our mouths, is it God-honoring? Will God be pleased with it? See, as Christians, we are to hate that stuff. It shouldn't even be in our lives. We are to have an attitude that moves away from that. Finds that stuff repulsive. Instead, we are to cling to what is good. The stuff of God. The stuff God calls good. We are to desire those things. To be drawn toward those things. To crave them. Paul also went on that we are to be devoted to each other. Again, that is out of love. Specifically, the wording Paul used here is Christian to Christian. Christians are to be devoted to each other. 
Christians, the church is supposed to be such a united front that as the world looks at us, they are amazed at how we can be so united. Amongst our various diversities, political background, social background, economic background, racial background, it doesn't matter. Christians are to be so united that the world looks at us in amazement and desires to model what we're doing. They want in on it. They want to be a part of that. Christians should be the strongest group on the planet. Further, Paul goes on that Christians are to assign a higher status level to other believers than what they assign to themselves. Consider others, other believers, as the words he was using there, assign, uh, consider other believers as more important than yourselves. Now I have to say, earlier in the book, uh, Romans 6 and 7 in there, Paul was talking about uh, some ideas of how it is that Christians are to put other Christians before themselves. Considering them is more important. He goes on though, and I find that next section interesting to me anyway, where he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. A more literal translation might be, uh, be a blazing fire for God as opposed to being smoldering ashes. A spiritual fervor idea. Be a blazing fire for God. Or another way of translating it, have a boiling over faith. Not just something that's smoldering along, but something that is intense. Every time that we serve others, Jesus taught us that we're serving Him. Every time that we uh, use our spiritual gifts to serve within the church, we are serving God. And Paul's reminding us here, don't let your blazing fire, your boiling over faith, diminish in any way, but let it shine out. Use what God has given you to serve other people. Now the next several instructions that he gave there in that section, they pointed to enduring no matter what comes your way. But our attitude that we're to have, it also means that we are to share with God's people as they are in need. Remember, most of the words that Paul used here, he was using Greek words that pointed to believer to believer. And Paul's elevating the relationship Christians are to have with each other that is to be head and shoulders above every other commitment that we have to other people. Finally, Christians are to be marked by hospitality. In the ancient world, there wasn't a Holiday Inn Express that a person could just stop at when they were traveling. It's just a few years too early. And so what was common in, in, that, in the ancient world, especially the Jews, but other ancient peoples had this. The ancient Greeks had this as well. But there was this idea that when a traveler was going traveling, uh, that you would open your home to them. The word that's translated as hospitality, another way uh, to understand it would be to let someone sit at your table, in other words, share a meal with. It was common that a traveler would be given maybe a place to stay in your house for the night. In, in, Greek, uh, in the Greek world, Zeus actually favored the traveler, and if you didn't treat the traveler well, Zeus would be against you. There's a common ideology in the ancient world. And so when Paul's saying here, be hospitable, he's saying, Christians, your hospitality should be miles above everybody else's. Scholars debate as to who Paul was talking about, uh, that the being hospitable toward. Uh, they debate, who was he pointing at? 
It was a common thing for Christians to travel around, especially uh, uh, missionaries and, and, and preachers, evangelists. And it was a common practice in the early church to take those people in. If you're coming to a new area, find a local church uh, uh, and find people there who can put you up as long as you're there. So it's a possibility Paul was pointing to Christian, look out for other Christians and be hospitable to them. However, it's also equally viable that Paul could have been talking about here that when those anybody's are traveling through, Christians, let your hospitality be above everybody else's. Welcome them in. Treat them well. All of that so that you can point them toward Christ. And if we tie it in with last week's message, we find out that we are to love everybody, believer and non-believer. So it really points to this idea that probably Paul was saying, be hospitable to everybody. Paul transitions, though, in verse 14 to another direction. Picking up verses 14 through 16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. We catch that there is a transition here because Christians should not be persecuting Christians. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. The whole of the New Testament teaches us. And while it is a true statement, been used many times, created by somebody else, that Christians are among the only ones who shoot their own wounded. It's not supposed to be that way. Christians are not supposed to treat each other that way. But it doesn't take long, and you read the news, and you see where there's one church attacking another church. Christians seem sometimes bent to devote their entire life to attacking other Christians. But it's not supposed to be that way. It shouldn't be the case. That's why we see that this is a transition that Paul is making to talk about now, while he just got done talking about believer-to-believer interaction, now he's talking about believer-to-non-believer interaction. Christians, what are we to do? Well, we are to bless those who are attacking us, who we might consider maybe enemies, and to do so because of our love for God. Natural reaction when somebody attacks you is to get all defensive or maybe attack back, isn't it? And maybe questions run into our mind, well, what gives them the right to do that? I didn't do anything to them. Why are they attacking me? As a normal reaction, sometimes even though we want to lash out, maybe get even. I know our getting even in, as Christians is a bit different. We, we share those prayer requests that are nothing more than gossips. We have our own ways of getting even. Maybe we want to pray like uh, David did in some of his song, psalms, God, utterly destroy them. Maybe that's the approach we want to have, but Paul gives here a different attitude that we're to have. One of blessings for them. He then gives some practical thoughts to help us connect better with those outside of Christ. He gives us some practical thoughts to help us to see how we can connect those people outside of Christ, us connect with them so they can connect with God. He says, let them know how much you care by a few simple acts. Celebrate with them over the things that they're celebrating with. Mourn with them over the things that they're mourning with. And you know, I understand, this gets kind of wiggly in here for Christians, because we, we start to wonder, well, should we be celebrating with them over fill in the blank? And I'm not in any way advocating celebrating sin. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is celebrate 
with those outside of Christ over what they're celebrating about. Mourn with them with the things that they're mourning. And why? Well, Paul here, he explains it. He explains the why behind that. The results of doing that result in harmony. So verse 16 is now where we get to the meat of our conversation, the passage I read at the beginning. In many ways, all of what I've just been talked about, Paul is summing up right here in verse 16 when he says, live in harmony with one another. Guess what? Paul used that word here. It's translated as harmony. It's the Greek word phroneo. Christians are to live in harmony with other people. We are to have a certain attitude toward others that is based on who Jesus is. What attitude are we to have then? What does that attitude look like in our daily lives? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul did probably one of the best explanations of what the attitude of Jesus is like, that we are then to mimic. We are to, uh, to model our life after His so I want to read Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, you may want to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. But I'm going to read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. But I'm going to put the Greek word in there in place of the English word, just so you can see this picture of what Paul was talking about. So Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, of any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, complete by being phroneo, having the same love, being one in spirit and one phroneo. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same, there it is again, phroneo as Christ Jesus. And now Paul goes on to explain what that attitude looks like that we're to have, though he just got done explaining it. Jesus' attitude was this, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul is saying here, if you call yourself a Christian, here's some instructions. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather, value others as more important than yourself. Be like Jesus, who humbled Himself for other people. Now, in verse 3, the, Paul used the word that New Testament writers used to indicate Christian, other Christians. In humility, value other Christians above yourself. So first and foremost, Christians are to be in harmony with Christians. That's a non-negotiable here. Christians don't get the option of not being in harmony with each other. We are to be united. Church divisions and splits and, and arguments should not be happening. We are to be in harmony. We are to stand out from the rest of the world as they, they look at us and they watch how we interact with each other. And that, to be, that is to be such a good thing that they want in on it. But in verse 5, he used a different word. 
Where in verse 3, it was the word that indicated Christian to Christian. Verse 5, he used the word that I talked about last week, where it's of a different kind than what is talked about in the context. The word relationships, he's talking about a different kind. Remember we talked about this last week? What other kind is there other than Christian? Well, that would be non-Christian. So Paul's saying here, in your interactions with those outside of Christ, we're to have a, a, a relationship with them. We're to have the same franeo as Jesus, the same attitude, the same mindset as what Jesus had toward them. What attitude did he have? Well, he made himself nothing. He became a servant of all. He humbled himself and took the cross for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I, before we got to the point where we realized we even needed God, before we even realized an, an inkling of turning toward Him, Jesus died for us. Don't miss that. That's significant. That's the attitude Jesus had, one of seeking the best for everybody, and the best being Himself, the relationship with God. His attitude toward those who didn't even know Him yet. That's to be our attitude. One of seeking their good. While we were outsiders, Jesus' attitude, His franeo, was thinking of our good. And you know what the cool thing is? Paul back there in Romans chapter 12, he pointed out some interesting things that happen, interesting results, when Christians have the attitude of Christ toward non-Christians, and the attitude of Christ, Christian to Christian. Starting in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, first of all, he quoted an Old Testament passage that teaches us how to react to those who might be attacking us, might have uh, enmity toward us. When we feed our enemy, when we give them something to drink, some interesting things happen. When somebody is after us and we repay them with kindness, some interesting things happen in that relationship. And what happens, well, sometimes we struggle to understand what the writers were meaning. And again, scholars debate there's a variety of meanings as what was meant by heaping coals on someone's head. And while the meanings vary on, on that, I tend to side in this direction. That when we repay somebody's bad behavior toward us with loving behavior, well, they may feel shame, but the ultimate goal is so that they realize what they were doing wrong and change their mind and their perspective toward us. Instead of repaying their bad attitude with our own bad attitude, we repay them with good instead. And then what happens? They are more likely to listen to what we have to say about Jesus. 
You see, the attitude that we are to have that Paul was teaching here in the Romans passage, as well as the Philippians ones, one is one that is based in Jesus. Harmony among believers and harmony into our world as far as it depends on you. And that is all found in imitating Jesus. You see, harmony is an attitude of servitude. Harmony is an attitude of servitude. It is willing to put other people before ourselves. It is willing to humble ourselves to nothing so that we can bring about what is best for somebody else. Bring about their greatest good. What's the greatest good that we could ever help somebody find? Salvation. What's the greatest good we could help a believer find? Growing in their faith. See, when Christians are this way, they have this attitude of servitude. They are living harmoniously with other people. Amazing things end up happening. The attitude that the Holy Spirit is developing inside believers uh, while He is renewing our minds, that we play a part in that renewal, well, that's harmonious servitude. The attitude that allows us to sincerely love others, it's the attitude of servitude, that harmonious servitude. The attitude Christians are to have with those who are not Christians, harmonious servitude as far as it depends on them. The attitude Christians are to have toward everybody, That's that harmonious servitude that says, I want to work together with other believers to bring about what is best for the people around me. I want to work together in God's design, modeling Jesus' life into my own. That's that idea of harmony. We need to become more intentional in looking for ways to have this attitude of servitude toward other people. It should be seen most prominently between believers but should also be seen by non-believers who are watching us. So they see what God has for us. Our love should be what is behind all of it. So how can, how can we display more of that attitude of servitude in our own lives? What is it that we could do tomorrow, even today, to display even more of that attitude of servitude, which is what harmony is about?